Good morning. Welcome to Community Church. Glad to have you guys with us. I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things in the bulletin. Uh, first, if we're, we're sort of contemplating a Hurricane Harvey relief trip through uh, Samaritan's Purse. If you might be interested in participating in that, please call the church office. We're sort of trying to gauge who in the church might be interested in that. So uh, sometime this week, give the church a call. There's a few other announcements in there. Specifically, I want to call attention to a couple of volunteer opportunities, uh, one with assisting us in coordinating special events here, and then also I believe MOPS is looking for uh, some help as well. So read through those bulletin announcements. Also, I want to call your attention to a couple of changes that are occurring. Uh, Jason Lane, most of you know Jason. He has been our worship director for some time. Uh, Lots of changes happening in Jason's life. His business is booming. His family is growing, not numerically, but chronologically. His boys are getting older. And a lot of activity. So Jason has had to step back in a variety of ways. And so there has been some changes. Alicia Belgiovanni has taken over our worship planning. So if you have any kind of feedback about the worship service or anything like that, Alicia would be the person to give that feedback to. Uh, Patrick Burke is taking over the duties in the sound booth back there. Wave, Patrick. You don't often see him, but everything that comes out of this microphone depends on him. So he's pretty important. And then um, also another change that has occurred is that and this has been going on for some time, Val Ramos, uh, not only is our youth director, but also our uh, musical worship leader leading the worship team. So a few changes there. You are all here this morning. This is wonderful news because, you know, uh, Jesus, according to David Mead, was supposed to return yesterday. Any of you pay attention to that? September 23rd was supposed to be the beginning of the end. But here we are. Now, I I, I call attention to this because we're going to be studying Psalm 2 today. And Psalm 2 is all about the second coming of Christ. And we will dig into that uh, in a few minutes. But it's interesting to me that every so often someone comes along and proclaims that this date or that date, the Lord will return. How many of you were around in 1988 when the book was going around? 88 reasons the Lord will return in 1988. And he, that author, of course, was not the first person to do that. In fact, like most of these guys who set dates and the dates come and go, he then amended his book to say that he had gotten a few things wrong and that the Lord would return in the early 90s. Well, of course, here we are. So, now... I say these things, and and I I suppose to some degree with a mocking voice, uh, because I want you to know that whenever you hear someone set a date, the Lord will return, or this prophetic event will occur on this date, you can absolutely be confident that it will not happen then. Because the Lord himself said, no man knows the day or the hour. Now, That said, it's important for us also, though, not to grow hard of heart. Peter talks about the attitude that many people will have 
in the last days. And I, for one, believe that we are in the last days. Because the apostles of the early church also believed that. Listen to what Peter writes. He says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this promise of his coming? Ever since the ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But this they deliberately forget, that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these same waters, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So Peter is calling attention to the fact that some people will take the attitude that there's been this promise of his coming now for some 2,000 years. Why should we pay attention to that? Because things have gone on as they always have. Well, for one thing, we are supposed to eagerly await the coming of the Lord. I want to read you a few scriptures here just to reflect that fact. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Therefore, since you do not lack any spiritual gift, as you eagerly await Jesus Christ being revealed. And then in Galatians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul writes, For through the Spirit we all eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Then a few pages later in the book of Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, But you are citizens of heaven, and you eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, It says, So as Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, so he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, do you catch the theme there that each of those verses puts forth? That we are to be eagerly awaiting his return, the revelation. Of Jesus Christ. So I don't blame these people who sort of get excited and begin to th- look at the signs of the times and think the Lord is returning. I just take issue with the fact that they get very specific and say that he is returning on such and so date. Because here's the fact of the matter Jesus Christ is going to return, he promised that. He promised that to his disciples. He said, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will return again and receive you unto myself. So there is a promise of his return. And we are to eagerly await his return. It should, in some degree, frame how we look at the world. So, to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a prophetic psalm, and it's dealing with, as I said, the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is interesting because you think back in the early psalms, already they're writing about the second coming of Christ. Well, absolutely. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are over 1,800 verses 
that directly deal with the return of Christ. It's a big issue, even in the Old Testament. So that's the context within which we will understand and read through Psalm 2. Again, I've titled this series, Awakening the Heart, Relating Honestly with God. And I wanted to include this psalm in that because so many of us, I believe, have become a little bit like the scoffers Peter wrote of. We sort of go through our lives without a sense of or an awareness of the fact that Jesus Christ could return at any moment for his church. Our hearts are not awakened to that truth. One of the chastisements that Jesus had for those whom he preached to was they did not discern or recognize the signs of the times. He says, you look to the skies and you can say if the sky is red, then rain is coming. But you cannot look and discern the fact that I am here, that I have come. So they were able to discern the weather, but they were not able to discern the prophetic reality of the fact that the Messiah had come. So I want you to be in the posture of understanding that Christ is going to return. And this is not going to be an in-depth study of the signs of the times, but here's what I want to say to you. If you do a study of Matthew chapter 24 and look at the signs that Jesus indicated would be prevalent and growing in intensity prior to his return, what you will find is we live in a time where those things are happening and the intensity intensity with which they are happening is increasing. Are you eagerly awaiting that? Or does that terrify you? Jesus told his his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and into the hands of the Romans. And I will be crucified. But I will rise again on the third day. And Peter, who had just proclaimed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, came up to Jesus and said, May it never be, Lord. God forbid that that should ever happen to you. What did Jesus say to Peter in response? Get thee behind me, Satan. For you are not concerned about the things of God, but the things of man. So see, Peter did not want Jesus to go to the cross. God forbid, he said, that you should have to die, Jesus. But Jesus said that was satanic because it was through the cross that all mankind would be saved. So likewise, when we look at this issue of the second coming, I get it. Some of you are like having a great time. Some of you are are young and raising families. And the whole notion of the return of Christ seems terrifying, seems interrupting. And you want to, like Peter, say, God forbid that it should ever happen. But the simple truth is, it will happen. Christ will come again. And we're going to look at some of the circumstances that surround that. Why? 
do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So here the psalmist is talking of a time when there will be a physical culmination of the spiritual rebellion that has existed ever since Lucifer first raised up himself against the Lord and said, I will ascend to the seat of the Most High. You see, Lucifer wanted to be like God. In fact, he wanted to usurp God and become his own God. And that rebellion that is chronicled in Isaiah chapter 14 has moved forward from that moment to the point where Adam and Eve fell into sin. And throughout the history of mankind, we have been in active rebellion against God. We have been following the path that Lucifer followed, where we want to be the gods of our own lives. We want to choose how we live our lives. And we want to dictate the circumstances under which we live rather than submitting to the righteous rule of a sovereign God. Here, this is the physical culmination of that. And we read about it in Revelation chapter 19. John the Revelator speaks of the second coming here. And he says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. So very clearly, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. The armies of heaven follow after him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus Christ is returning to the earth as he said he would. In the air, followed by the armies of heaven, prepared to do battle with the sharp sword which comes out of his mouth. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and of generals and of the mighty, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw, and this is where we align with Psalm 2, the first three verses, the beast and the kings of all of the earth and their armies gather together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. So Jesus returns, just like the lightning flashing in the east. There is no doubt as the people look up and see the rider on the white horse returning and the sword of the word of God coming out of his mouth to slay them 
and to defeat them. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up against the Lord and against his anointed, seeking to break off his change and throw off his shackles. But one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now, it is something difficult to imagine, isn't it? Stop and think about this just for a moment. Apply some simple logic to the notion of Lucifer, regardless of how brilliant and impressive a creature he was. Determining in his own mind that he could defeat the sovereign Lord who had made him. The the incredible deceptive power of pride. How on earth did Lucifer ever suppose that he could defeat Jehovah God? That he could overcome the throne of Jehovah and rise up against him. The one enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them because the same thing that will happen to Lucifer Lucifer will happen to these people as well. They will be utterly defeated. And I, I ask that question, who could have possibly supposed that they could overthrow God, that they could usurp God, that they could push God off of the throne? And the simple answer to that question is not only Lucifer, but every one of us in this room. Every one of us in this room, before we came to Christ, before we acknowledged our sin, before we humbled ourselves and said, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, every one of us did exactly what Lucifer did. We said, I am going to be on the throne of my life. I am going to choose how I live my life. I am the one who is going to be in control of the destiny that lies before me. We all did it, folks. We, we look at this and we think, yeah, of course the Lord scoffs. Of course the Lord laughs. How could Lucifer have ever supposed that he could be successful? And yet, each one of us have done exactly the same thing. This is why we absolutely need a Savior. And this is why, ultimately, Jesus Christ has to come and defeat Satan in the battle of Armageddon. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. When Jesus Christ returns, it's interesting, it says that he slays the armies gathered there against him with the sword that comes out of his mouth. Paul confirms that. He says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. This is in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow 
with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So there's not going to be this great battle where everybody is going to be on a field doing battle with one another. But the Lord is going to return and he is going to speak. The Lord is going to say, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And with the brilliance of his coming and with the truth of those words, he is going to destroy the Antichrist and the armies assembled to do battle against the anointed of the Lord. You see, God's will cannot ultimately be frustrated. Jesus Christ will reign. It says in Isaiah chapter 2, in the last days, The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of all mountains. I will be, excuse me, it will be exalted above all of the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So from Jerusalem, Jesus Christ will establish a throne over which he will rule the nations for a thousand years. After he has defeated the Antichrist and the false prophet, Satan will be imprisoned for a thousand years, and Jesus Christ will rule and reign over the nations from Jerusalem. That's what God the Father says here in verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then in verse 7, the voice changes. It's no longer the Father speaking, but it is the Son. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, speaking of the Father, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, this is a a fascinating verse because in what respects is Jesus Christ the Son? Sometimes we don't think that through all of the way. In what ways is Jesus Christ the Son? Well, first and foremost, Jesus Christ has been the Son eternally. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was God or excuse me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus Christ, the Word, was in the beginning with God, eternally, always present with Him, the second person in the Trinity. So He was the Son eternally, but He's also the Son incarnationally. That is to say, He did become a man. In John chapter 1, We read of this being described. John says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, however, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. So Jesus Christ was the Son incarnationally. He became a man and he walked among us. He made the Father known. But Jesus was also the Son resurrectionally. 
That is to say, when he rose from the dead, his sonship was perfectly revealed. Listen to what Paul writes to the Colossians. He said, speaking of Jesus, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, and he is the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, the very first one to rise from the dead, never again to taste death. So he is the son resurrectionally. But as this psalm indicates to us, and is also indicated in other sections of the scriptures, he is the son royally. That is to say, he is going to ascend the throne, just as it is described here in Psalm 2. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. I have installed my king on my holy hill. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says with regards to the Son. And this is a quote out of the Psalms. It says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above all of your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So he is the son royally. He ascends to the throne that will last forever and ever. And his scepter will be one of righteousness and of truth. So he is the son. And the son says that the father has told him, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. So here it is speaking of the rule of Christ from the throne there in Jerusalem on the hill or the Mount of Zion where Jesus will, as we read about in Isaiah chapter 2, establish justice, Settle disputes among the nations. He will resolve all of the issues that come to bear. Now, this will not be a time where everyone on the earth will have been resurrected. The church will have been resurrected. And we will be seated on thrones with him. And we will rule over the nations with him. Now, this is good news, church. This is exciting news for you. It says here that he will break them with a rod of iron. And that is later quoted, as I read in Revelation chapter 19, where it says that he, he will uh, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. So Jesus will rule with an iron scepter, but In the promise to the church at Thyatira, the church received this promise. Now, to the rest of you in Thyatira, you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will impose upon you no other burden except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give him authority 
over the nations. That one will rule over them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, quoting the same verse that is related to Christ. Just as I have received authority from my Father, so I will also give that authority to you. So we will be co-regents with him during this thousand-year period. We will rule and reign with him during this thousand years over the kingdom of God established on earth. It will be time of unprecedented blessing, unprecedented righteousness, but it will not be a time absent sin. There will still be sin. That is why the rod of iron is necessary. Now, there's a fascinating scripture about this time, and it's found in the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah 14. It's talking about here the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And it says that during this time, the Lord will be the king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. And the whole land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin gate to the side of the first gate, to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel, to the royal wine presses, and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited, never again to be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. Again, reflecting the scripture that we read about in Isaiah chapter 2, where the Mount of Zion will elevate, be elevated above all other places. And that from that place, Jesus will rule. But then this interest, interesting passage comes. Then the survivors from all of the nations that have attacked Jerusalem, in other words, those physical survivors, not the ones who have been resurrected at this point, but the physical survivors of Armageddon, and there will be some, will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will then bring upon them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. So during this time, even though Jesus will have returned, done battle with the Antichrist, defeated him, established his absolute rule and reign from Zion, yet there will be people because of that rebellious nature that originated with Lucifer that says, I want to determine, I want to decide, I want to control. And they will say, you know what? We're not going up. We're not going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And as a result, the rod of iron will smite them. So there will be some degree of rebellion that occurs during this thousand years, but it will be quickly, swiftly, and thoroughly dealt with. He will break them with a rod of iron, dashing them to pieces like pottery. Harsh language. But you know what? If you read through the scriptures, you will find on numerous occasions that we're not just dealing with Jesus meek and mild. I mean, I love the picture of Jesus meek and mild, and I'm thankful that that aspect of Jesus exists, the mercy, the grace, the condescension that he continually gives to me. 
But there's also this righteous, holy, indignant aspect of God that we must confront, that we must awaken our hearts to. Therefore, because of all of this, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't apply it correctly through wisdom, it's of no use to you. So here, the kings of the earth are warned to use wisdom, to apply that wisdom to the reality that Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, is going to return, is going to establish his kingdom here on earth. And the admonition to those kings then is to serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son. That word kiss there is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It, It literally means to fasten to with fire. To fasten to or to attach to with fire. And I think the underlying meaning there is to come into a proper relationship with, to have a burning, fervent heart for God's kingdom and God's rule. Because that's really the whole point here of this song, church. The whole point is that we kiss the Son, that we take refuge in Him, that we attach or fasten ourselves to His reign over our lives, and we do so with fear and with trembling. See, the choice there at the bottom of verse 12 is wrath or refuge. We can fall at the feet of Jesus. We can kiss the Son and then find refuge in Him. We'll read about that next week, how the Lord is a shield about us and the lifter of our heads if we will humbly acknowledge His rule. Over us. But if we don't, if we harden our hearts, as the kings of the nations will do, we will be destroyed. His wrath will consume us. His word will absolutely and utterly wipe us away. I made some fun of people who. you know, put dates out there and say, on such and so day, the Lord is returning. It's never proven to be true, and it never will. But we can have a sense, not just a sense, we can have an understanding of the fact that the day of His coming is drawing near. I want to read you a couple of scriptures in conclusion here. Regarding the day of the Lord, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not 
in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Now, we will not know the day or the hour, but Paul here says that we are not in darkness so that the coming of that day, the perception of the signs and the discernment of them should not escape us. We should all understand and be aware of the fact that that day indeed is approaching. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews says this, let us consider how we may spur one another, excuse me, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more when you see the day approaching. Now I want to just ask you a question. Actually, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Are you eagerly awaiting his appearing, as those scriptures I read to you suggest that you should? Or are you more like Peter? God forbid that this should ever happen, Lord. Can't we just have peace and safety? Or are you eagerly awaiting his return? Do you perceive the signs of the times that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24? I'm not saying you should become a student of those signs necessarily, but are you paying attention? Are you aware of what is happening all around you? Because here's, here's the thing, church, and this is the, the, the most important thing. There are so many of us who are going about our business, fulfilling all of our daily demands, moving on from Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday to Friday to Saturday, and again into Sunday without ever having a sense of an awareness towards all that is happening around us. That day should not overtake any one of us and surprise us. We are not in darkness. The Lord's Spirit is with us and His Word illuminates our path. I want every one of you to be prepared. I want every one of you to be about the Lord's business whatever that may mean in your life, I want you to be doing that thing when he returns. Because that's what Jesus said. Blessed is the servant who the master finds so doing when he returns. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement we have from your word that you are coming again, that you fulfill your promises. And though there is devastation that awaits those who rebel against you, for those of us who have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light, Lord, there is hope. There is anticipation. There is great blessing. Help each one of us to begin to discern the signs of the times, to be watchers of all that goes on around us. And with that awareness, Lord, to be 
proclaimers of the fact that you are coming again. May our hearts be burdened for the lost. May our souls long for their salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.